Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Trees provide us with oxygen, shelter, and materials. This time of year in autumn, trees bring us joy. They also have a place in our culture, too, in our stories, our songs, our history. Today, where we live, we look at the long, long life of trees. It's the title of a new book by Fiona Stafford. Connecticut State Forester will also join us to talk about our treescape throughout New England. What species are abundant locally, and which ones are in danger? And later, WNPR science reporter Patrick Skeha will be here, along with a researcher working for National Geographic. Kevin McLean will tell us what we can learn from rainforest canopies, a place rarely explored. You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now by phone from the UK is Fiona Stafford. She's a professor of English at the University of Oxford. She hosted The Meaning of Trees on BBC Radio's Three's The Essay, and her new book, again, is called The Long, Long Life of Trees. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. In studio with me is Christopher Martin. He's director of forest, forestry rather, for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thank you for coming in, Chris. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'll start with Fiona. Uh, besides an, being an author, you're a tree enthusiast. When did you first become, uh, your, discover rather, your passion for trees? I think I've always been quite keen on trees ever, ever since I was a, a little girl and picked up conkers and helped build bonfires in the garden and that kind of thing. Um, but um, it's, a, it's an enthusiasm that's probably become more conscious as I've got older. I think when you're a child, you don't really necessarily distinguish that this is something peculiar. Um, but since I've got older, I've realized just, just how important trees are. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very long-standing interest. And, and why do you why are do trees fill us with you know wonder and awe? Well, I think you actually only need to go and have a look at one. Um, they're, they're all around, but often because they're all around, we tend not to not necessarily to see them. I mean, I realise that people listening to this particular show probably probably do see them all the time, but it's surprising how many people don't really notice the trees down the street um, that, that, or that they, you know, they just pass or might be in the, at school or whatever. Um, but as soon as you actually stand and look at a tree, it's just a phenomenal thing, um, almost any species. They're, they're just really, really beautiful, beautiful objects. Um, and, you know, we're... we're we're conditioned to look at paintings and think, oh, this is beautiful, or look at a, a, a building and we're told, oh, you know, this is beautiful. But actually trees are just remarkable, remarkable structures, I think. And when you were saying that some some people may go about their day and not really notice trees, is that becoming more common or, or are we finding ourselves drawn back to, to trees in our communities? I think that's a really interesting question. I, I would have said, um, you know, if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I'd have probably said I, I think people aren't really noticing trees very much. But actually, I think over the last couple of years, certainly in the UK, um, there's been a real growth in interest in trees. Um, and especially if trees are kind of under threat, 
um, or there's a new development, a new highway that, that means a lot of trees are going to be cut down. People are more visibly concerned about this, I think, than they would have been a few years ago. I don't know whether that's the same um, in Connecticut. Oh, it definitely is. Well, again, our state forester is here, uh, Chris Martin. Um, first, tell us, as state forester, what do you do? Well, I'm the director of the Division of Forestry, so um, we manage about 170,000 acres of state agency property, um, forests, and we have a very robust urban forestry program. We reach out to uh, private woodland owners, uh, which uh, own about 70% of Connecticut's forests, and also we have a actually very active fire protection program uh, where we have uh, firemen that uh, go out west to the large fires out west, and then also occasionally we do have fires in Connecticut. They suppress those. And what about trees for you? Is this something that you were drawn to as a as a boy? Oh yeah, I um <laughs> I grew up uh, watching Lassie <laughs> after school <laughs> and uh, was very active in scouts. I was very fortunate to grow up um, in an area that was at the time rural, and there was well over a thousand acres of woods around my house. So I was always in the woods, exploring and learning. Talk talk to us about you. Know, obviously, you are in touch with a lot of of property owners around the state, and you know. I get the impression that people in Connecticut appreciate trees. What's your take? Oh, right on. Yes, we uh, worked recently with Yale and did a pretty intensive study of um, woodland owners in Connecticut. And and this is a study that is going on nationwide. And um, Connecticut's landowners really rise to the top as far as their um, knowledge of the benefit that their forests provide their community. Um, They own them uh, for wildlife and recreation. Uh, and oftentimes, surprisingly, they're concerned about who will own the woods after them. And some not so much uh, wanting to pass them on to their children in fear of what may come of their woods. Meaning that the land will get subdivided and cleared? True. Yeah, the folks that uh, own woodland in Connecticut are very passionate about their ownership, and they like to get out there and hands-on, I'm kind of that roll-up-the-sleeve Yankee uh, style. And they've invested uh, blood, sweat, and tears in their property. And so passing it on to someone else who may not have that same passion and enjoyment is concerning for them. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Chris Martin. He's the Connecticut State Forester. And uh, on, f- on the phone with us is Fiona Stafford. She's an author and professor of English at the University of Oxford. And her book is called The Long, Long Life of Trees. Fiona, let's go through parts of your book. So when we open up the book, the, the um, chapters are divided by uh, tree species. And I wanted to start with the mighty oak. What can you tell us about the oak? Well, um, the oak is one of these trees that's um, been really, really important in, in human culture for a very long time. It obviously continues to be so, but um, certainly in Western culture, um, it, it's uh, it, it's always been revered. I mean, it was a tree that was important to the ancient Greeks. It was important in Norse mythology. Um, in Britain, um, it's got special kind of royal associations which which go right back it's particularly associated um with with charles ii um who was the king who came back after we had a after we had a republic for 11 years um he he came back and he made the oak tree his own because he had had this very dramatic escape um when he during the english civil war um he was uh, defeated at the Battle of Worcester, and he was fleeing from Cromwell's troops, and he hid in an oak tree, um, and he, this is how he he made his escape. And so, when he was invited back uh, as to be the king, 
um, he made a great deal of this. And of course, as he made a great deal of this and had everybody waving oak leaves and acorns, he was drawing on these much older associations of the oak with, with strength and with divine power. So it, it's a very kind of important tree um, in Britain, um, but it's also a very important tree for lots of other nations as well. And I think this is one of the interesting things that everybody tends to claim their local tree as their own kind of special property and they don't realize that actually somebody in a different country is probably doing exactly the same with the same tree so that was something i was interested in with the with um with the oak especially i know we have a a particular oak history here in connecticut i'll let our state forester talk about the charter oak oh it's funny the parallels between the uk and and, and america (laughs) but um yeah our most famous tree obviously is the charter oak charter oak which is a white oak um that was in hartford um it fell about 160 years ago, but it was estimated to be over 1,000 years old when it did fall. Um, there's uh, reports that they had a funeral profession- procession for the tree uh, when it came down. And, um, you know, of course, the Connecticut Charter was hidden in there uh, during some opposing views of how uh, self-governing Connecticut could be at the time. This is like, oh, I think it was uh, 1662, so a long time ago. Uh-huh. And um, our Native Americans um, utilized that tree. They uh, timed their plantings to when the leaves came out. So it really had um, a really historical value, um, cultural value for Connecticut. When we look at our treescape in New England here in Connecticut, um, uh, Chris, you know, how how common are oaks and are they under threat by, um, you know, insects or other invasives? Well, um, you know, Connecticut is... uh, kind of unique uh, in its geographic location where we are at the confluence of northern hardwoods and Appalachian hardwoods. And so we have some of the most diverse forests in the nation. Many folks don't realize that initially. But uh, within Connecticut itself, there are 16 different native oaks. And um, the oaks are doing pretty well, actually, overall. Uh, There's no new invasive insects attacking them. Um, They're a strong, sturdy tree, very resilient. Uh, There are other species in Connecticut that are under threat, uh, and uh, one in particular is ash, uh, emerald ash borer now is pretty much widespread. And in western Connecticut, we're actually seeing mortality from the insect. Let's talk about the ash tree. Fiona, that's also featured in your book. Um, we know that the oak symbolizes strength, but what about the ash? And how has that been used through uh, the centuries? Oh, well, the ash is um, a very interesting kind of counterpart uh, to the oak. Um, certainly in the British context, it's probably... Um, as much part of the culture as the oak, but but generally less well recognised. Though, though with the worry about um, ash dieback, um, recently people have become much more much more ash aware. But um, traditionally, um, it, it, it's been called the Venus of the woods. It's the tree of love, um, whereas the oak is this very kind of solid, um, sturdy tree, very hard wood, um, and, and often seen as a kind of manly tree. Um, the ash tree has always been seen as a much more much more feminine um, kind of tree. And people used to actually um, collect up ash leaves and young women used to wear them in their, um, in their cleavage in the hope of attracting, uh, attracting a, a, a young man. And, and there was a belief that if they did that, the first young man they saw would be their, their husband, which I've always thought sounded a bit of a risky, <laughs> risky approach. But anyway, this is one of the, the old, old traditions um, associated with, with the ash tree. And have you seen a dieback in Great Britain? And, you know, how has that, has it rebounded at all, the ash tree? 
Um, well, we're still monitoring it, really. Um, I think there's still a great deal of concern because it, 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 it's wrought havoc in, in Europe um, and it's it's arrived in the UK and um, it's, it's being monitored at the moment and it's difficult to know... Um, what you know what will be the consequences whether it'll just kind of sweep through all the ashes um or not or whether we'll have some naturally resistant strains because i think in in denmark some of the ash trees were naturally resistant and they've already begun to sort of repopulate um their their ashes but it's such a prevalent tree um in in england that i think if if ash dieback really does sweep across as some of the some of the predictions have suggested it, it will be pretty devastating and that's without the emerald borer insect mm. arriving which is um uh, you know what was it, what was just mentioned by chris and and chris um how how much under threat are the ash trees i couldn't even tell you what an ash tree looks like i'm i'm more familiar with the oak and, and sure. the maple here <laughs> well they um they're a beautiful tree um they uh, in fact uh, many ashes were planted in urban areas after the dutch elm blight um they have a vase type structure to them they're long tall and they have a vase t- like upside down vase figure uh, and therefore, they're really compatible for urban areas. Connecticut's, uh, you know, ash represents about five to ten percent of all trees in Connecticut, and it grows along roadsides. Um, and we've had more of a utilitarian approach to ash, not so much um, as described in the UK. Um, very, very uh, handy for uh, Louisville slugger bats and tools, and um, we uh, oftentimes use them for firewood. Uh, splits easily, and. Uh, the ash itself um, really is, uh, I think, um, has a very cultural importance to Native Americans. The baskets are made from ash. We have green, black, and white ash in Connecticut, so there's three types of ash, mm-hmm. and uh, all are under threat. We're not sure what the outcome will be as far as resilience of remnant you know, trees themselves after the emerald ash borer sweeps through. Is there anything that the state's doing uh, to battle the uh, this uh, ash borer? It's very limited what we can do. Um, we are informing landowners and municipalities uh, to prepare. Um, it's a financial burden, obviously, to take down all these trees and they become a public hazard. Uh, so trees can be treated, uh, but it's a maintenance thing. It's an annual thing. We have to treat the tree to kill the, the beetle larvae that are inside the bark. Uh, we're giving a lot of advice to woodland owners on um, you know, whether or not they should remove the ash from their woods or let them die. A dead tree in the woods is not a bad thing. Lots of dead trees can be a problem. So just, you know, it's very much um, case by case on what's the most appropriate action. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about trees with Fiona Stafford, who's joining us from the U.K. Her book is The Long, Long Life of Trees. In studio with me is Chris Martin, Director of Forestry for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. What do trees mean to you? Do you have a question or a comment? 860-275-7266. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We like our trees in Connecticut so much so that you'll remember when Connecticut Light and Power, now Eversource, started clear-cutting trees along our highways and roads and near power lines by our homes after damaging storms a few years back. There were plenty of residents who were not pleased. The state forester is in studio. I'm sure he remembers that time. Today we're talking trees with tree enthusiast Fiona Stafford. Her new book is The Long, Long Life of Trees. She joins us by phone from the U.K. And as I mentioned, Chris Martin, Connecticut's tree 
Connecticut State Forester, rather, to here to talk about our local treescape. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We got a couple of tweets, a tweet from Brendan who, who writes, the engagement ring I had made for Joanna was from a piece of a sycamore that blew down during that October snowstorm several years ago. And a tweet from Nancy, if you're a tree hugger or just a great book lover, you have to read Lab Girl by Hope Jaren. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, Fiona, I want to go back to you again. Your book, you um, break up the chapters by uh, tree species. Let's talk about the horse chestnut. Okay. Tell us about it. The horse chestnut. Oh, well, another very (laughs) beautiful tree. I mean, I'm sorry, it's quite boring for me to just say, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful tree. But (laughs) the horse chestnut really is a fabulous tree. Um, I I think... um, it's very distinctive. I think it is a tree that, that people recognise because of those lovely um, leaves. They're kind of like great big big hands with the, um, the shape of them. And it has wonderful, wonderful blossom. And then those amazing spiky um, seed nuts um, and the horse chestnuts come bursting out of those. So it's a very kind of satisfying tree. But, but it was interesting hearing Chris talking about the ash and the practical uses of it. I mean, horse chestnut is a wood that is is not traditionally as useful as ash or oak. So it's always had a, a slightly different kind of cultural character, certainly in the in the UK. It was very much imported um, in order to, to look nice, really. That, that's, that's what it does. That's, that's its, its meaning, if you like. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's a bit different from some of the other trees that uh, people have always planted because they knew they were going to want to use the wood for all sorts of purposes. And the leaves are very unusual. Uh, very beautiful. Uh, Chris, how common are these? I think I see them along uh, streets occasionally in neighborhoods. Yeah, they are planted in urban areas. Um, you know, one of the benefits uh, of the horse chestnut in urban areas is that it does grow very large. And so they don't necessarily interfere quickly with overhead power lines, which is you know one of the big issues with trees, obviously. You know, horse chestnut in Connecticut is kind of a testament to resiliency. Uh, they grow in some of the harshest locations here, um, thin, rocky soils, very low nutrients and and yet they're hanging in there. They're a strong tree, and um, they just they cover our most rugged landscapes here. And um, unfortunately, the American chestnut not not here anymore. Well, yeah, they they still sprout, um, and you know, amazing how they uh, almost a hundred years ago the blight came through, and yet they still sprout. Mm-hmm. And you'll see them, you know, maybe grow three four inches in diameter, and then the blight hits them. The American Chestnut Foundation and actually our Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station has done tremendous work hybridizing. Uh, the American chestnut with the Chinese chestnut. They bring back the special characteristics of the American chestnut. And they're outplanting um, a hybridized chestnut now throughout the country and in Connecticut, hoping to bring that species back. Now, if you see the chestnuts from the horse chestnut, you can't roast those, right? No, I haven't heard of that happening. So um, maybe not quite as tasteful as a regular American chestnut. And and also uh, the yew tree, that's another one that um, I think is pretty unusual. I don't think we see those here in Connecticut. Can you talk about that, Fiona? Yes, I mean, yew trees are uh, very remarkable. They're certainly the oldest um, trees in the UK, um, and some of them have probably been growing 4,000 years. I mean, they are quite extraordinary organisms. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting because in the UK they're often found in churchyards, uh, and it's it's likely that in some cases uh, the tree was there before the before the church. Um, so so uh, it, it's 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 likely that the the church was sited where the yew tree 
was. Um, but but it's also interesting because um, yew trees, because they often are in churchyards, they have associations, um, religious associations, with, with everlasting life. And that's something that actually connects very much uh, to their, their kind of physical peculiarities because they have this extraordinary ability to regenerate, which is why it's very difficult to tell the age of a, a very old yew tree because... Um, uh, as, as, as they age, uh, new roots come down um, from the from the crown, and they sort of form a new a new trunk. So they they are these extraordinary organisms. And they they do they do appear unusual. And, and from what my producer has told me, that they've symbolised gloom and they're highly poisonous. That too, yeah. They they're these rather kind of. Um, uh, Mysterious trees, again, because they are associated with graveyards, um, that, that, that has, uh, and they're very dark, obviously, because they're, they're evergreens, that, that's given them this kind of gloomy character. But also, um, they, are, they are poisonous. Um, so, so Shakespeare, for example, called them double fatal uh, because they're poisonous, but also because they were the wood that were used um, for making longbows. Um, so they were double fatal in, in, in that sense, being poisonous, but also um, likely to produce death when handled by an English archer, as Shakespeare would see it. Another peculiarity, uh, their sap is blood red. Yes, that, that, that's right. So, so um, they, they can appear to bleed. Um, there's a there's a tree in in Wales called the the bleeding yew, and that that gives a very sort of strange appearance. And they're they're associated with suicides, um, partly for you know kind of visual reasons, I think, but also um, because of them being poisonous. Uh, people have actually uh, actually used used them for for that purpose. What can you tell us about yew trees in Connecticut? Are there any? I can say I'm grateful they're not native to Connecticut. <laughs> um, <laughs> people do plant yews uh, in their yard for hedgerows, and they're, they're, they provide privacy, and they're an aesthetically pleasing tree. Um, they don't naturalize in our forests. Occasionally you may come across one, mm-hmm. but um, thankfully they stay in their place and behave. Let's talk about a tree that we all appreciate in the autumn, and that's the apple tree, Fiona. Tell us about the apple tree. Uh, well, the apple tree, um, obviously, its cultural significance goes right back to the Bible. Um, it's the tree that's often seen as as the the tree that um, causes all the trouble in the book of Genesis when Eve puts out her hand and takes takes the fruit. It's not actually specified in the Bible, but that's often it's often assumed to be an apple apple tree. So, um, it, it, culturally, it, it's there. Um, Right from the beginning, um, and in most most cultures, it's associated with with youth as well. Um, you, you have the Celtic warriors feeding on apples, and the the Viking um, gods feeding on apples. It's it's the tree of kind of it's a tree of youth, really. Um, but of course, it, it, it's a it's a kind of very wholesome tree. Um, it, it, it's a tree that people people obviously have planted because they they like to eat apples, and you can do so much with apples. So I think it's very important in American culture. You'll be able to tell me more about that, but um, it seems to be uh, as important in America as it is um, in, in Europe. Um, so uh, it's a tree that we, we all know. But, but again, I think um, certainly a lot of, a lot of children and in, in kind of um, a lot of people uh, in cities don't necessarily really associate apples with trees. They, they buy them in the supermarket, but they don't necessarily think as they buy their their apples, oh yes, this is this has come come from a tree. So, in um, in Britain, there's a there's a kind of movement uh, to um, 
raise awareness of orchards um, and the old kind of apple varieties rather than just the rather limited kind that we get in the supermarket, all the old ones that they they used to have. So we now have a, a relatively new festival called Apple Day, which takes place um, in the in the autumn. Um, and it, it only, only started in, in 1990, but it, it's spreading and there seem to be more and more Apple Days every year. And that, that sort of shows, I think, how people want to celebrate apples, but also celebrate the orchards and the trees that they they come from. We've been through a drought here in Connecticut. I know very dry summers the last couple of years. Um, I wanted to turn back to our state forester, Chris Martin. Um, I had gone to a um, a farm to pick apples, and they only had a couple of varieties. They they mentioned the the drought was a factor. Tell us about how that's impacted the apple trees here. Well, um, there's a couple of things that are happening with the apple trees. One was, uh, you might call last winter being very mild, and actually December being very, very mild. And there was a weekend in February where we got well below zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, The trees had actually started to bud in February, which is highly unusual. And that freeze uh, did wipe out the peach crop completely and really impacted the apple trees. Uh, This year, um, the apples are a bit smaller um, because of the lack of moisture, uh, but the good side on that is the smaller the tr- apple, the sweeter it tends to be. Uh, when we have a wet summer, they get bigger, but the taste is not quite as succinct. And Fiona, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, please tell us, what's your favorite tree from writing this book? Oh, that's a question that's too hard to answer. <laughs> I find that it depends a little bit on what mood I'm in as to as to what my favorite tree is because they're they're so they're so varied. But actually, I do have a a soft spot for some of the trees that certainly um, in the UK are regarded uh, as, as kind of um, not, not really proper trees, things like the sycamore, because um, I think it's a really beautiful tree, but it tends to be regarded as a, a little bit common. So I have a, have a soft spot for the sycamore. And Chris, I'll ask you. Oh, well, I have to vote for the white oak, um, you know, the charter oak. And we have um, a ship, the old Ironsides, that was built in Connecticut that was impenetrable to cannonballs. So oak is just, um, and white oak in particular, is just a really tough old good tree. And we can't forget the sugar maple here in Connecticut. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, there's several favorites, actually, if I'm to be honest. <laughs> a quick email from Matthew, a listener. He comes from a part of the state where an organization called Joshua's Trust takes care of a lot of woodlands. Uh, he writes, I think it's a fantastic resource for the surrounding communities and wonders if there are similar organizations in other parts of the state. Uh, we'll ask uh, Chris, uh, our state forester, that uh, after the break, and we'll put some links up on our website for listeners uh, who want to get more information. But I do want to thank Fiona Stafford again. She's the author of The Long, Long Life of Trees. Thank you so much for joining us today from the UK, Fiona. Thank you very much. It's been really interesting. And also Chris Martin, Connecticut State Forester. We'll be back after the break to talk about what one researcher is doing in the canopies of rainforest trees in Borneo. But first, do you appreciate where we live? If so, here are two very nice people, my colleagues, to remind you we need listener support to keep quality programs on the air like where we live. Thanks for listening. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, when was the last time you changed your address? Well, if you're like most Americans, it probably wasn't that long ago. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average resident will move 11.7 times in his or her lifetime. On the next Where We Live, we rebroadcast our show about what it takes to truly love where you live. That's Monday.
Today we've been talking about trees and to hear about some really interesting research going on, I'm joined now by WNPR's Patrick Scahill. He's our science and environment reporter and host of The Beaker. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Lucy. And joining us by phone is Kevin McLean. He's a Fulbright National Geographic digital storytelling fellow who recently completed his Ph.D. at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Kevin, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you. So there's a little bit of a delay. I'll, I'll let our listeners know you're actually uh, joining us by phone from Borneo. So tell us what you're doing there. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I'm in uh, the state of Sabah, which is one of the two states uh, of Malaysia that's on uh, the island of Borneo. Um, I, uh, I had to take a, take a look at a map before I actually came here. There, there's three <laughs> different countries on the island of Borneo. Uh, Brunei, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And I'm in uh, the eastern part of Borneo doing research on wildlife that lives in the uh, canopy of rainforest here. I understand from talking with, again, uh, Patrick Skeho, who who is our science reporter, this kind of research is fairly rare up in the canopies of, of a rainforest tree? Uh, yeah. I, so what I'm doing is is just some baseline surveys of the, the wildlife using these motion-sensitive cameras or camera traps. Um, and camera traps are a really common uh, tool used to study animals in forests all over the world. Um, but not a lot of people are using them up in the trees, um, even though uh, myself and a few other researchers have shown that, that they actually perform pretty well. And tell us about, so we were focusing on on trees here uh, in the U.K., also uh, in New England. But when we're talking about rainforest trees, what kind of trees are you climbing? Uh, well, so the uh, the trees that are the forests here in uh, the lowland, uh, lowlands of uh, Borneo are called, uh, it's called a dipterocarp forest. And dipterocarp is, is the, uh, refers to the, the seeds of these trees. Uh, they have two wings on them, uh, and they fall, they, these trees are really, really tall, some of the tallest in, in the tropics. Um, actually, the tallest top tropical tree in the world is, is right here in Borneo, almost 300 feet tall. Um, so what, what you have are really, really tall trees, 200, almost 300 feet, um, that, that live in really, really uh, wet and humid forests. So, uh, Kevin, uh, you mentioned some of these trees are, are really, really tall. I mean, 300 feet, that's that's a ways to go up. So describe a bit how you get up in the canopy uh, and how you kind of lug all your gear up there. I mean, I, I would imagine you're sweating a lot and you have to carry, like, heavy cameras and all this other stuff. So how do you get it up there? Yeah, yeah, it is, uh, it is uh, quite quite a haul to get myself up there. So um, basically, I, I use a an eight-foot-tall slingshot um, to <laughs> shoot, basically. It's sort of like a, a bean bag that's attached to a string. Um, I shoot that string over whatever branch I can, uh, I can reach, um, and then I tie that string to my rope, and I, tie my, and I pull my rope up into the tree. And you basically create like a, a, um, a slip knot around the branch, and then I can climb up that rope. And if I need to get higher, then I throw that same beanbag up higher, and then I move move myself from branch to branch all the way up into the crown of the tree. And, um, and actually, the, the cameras themselves are not that that heavy, but um, but uh, it's certainly a lot of gear to get yourself up there. 
And my understanding, Kevin, is you're, you're a former gymnast. So I wonder if you can maybe kind of just describe once you're up in the canopy, uh, what's it like up there? How do you maneuver around and how are the animals moving when they're up there? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I uh, actually, you know, climbing climbing straight up into the tree is, is pretty straightforward. The, uh, the gear we use is similar to rock climbing gear. So going straight up is, is pretty simple. It's being able to maneuver on the branches to get myself into the right position to place the cameras. That takes a long time. Um, now, for me, I have to, I have to use uh, like front ropes to position myself just right um, between two different branches, between the, the trunk and, and another branch or something like that. Um, and it really, really becomes clear how... Uh, how ineffective my method is uh, in comparison to some of these, these other animals. Most species have uh, really long tails that, that provide a counterbalance. Some of, some of them have tails that are prehensile, so they can grab or even hang, hang uh, just from their tails alone. Um, here, in, uh, here in Borneo, there's actually a lot of different uh, flying squirrel species um, that, are, that use the, the large gaps in between these really tall trees uh, to move really long distances from one place to the next. I understand uh, that there are some sloths that you have observed that are moving faster than you in these trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I have actually, um, you know, I've, I've actually been up in the tree before trying to get to my one spot to set the camera. I had to move maybe six feet in front of me. And in that time, I spotted a sloth go two trees, uh, two trees by me. So we uh, we tend to think of uh, sloths and, and some of the other animals as, as being very slow moving, but relative to what I'm capable of, after mind you several years of training, uh, they're pretty adept up there. I'm talking with Kevin McLean. He's a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellow. Uh, he's in Borneo um, in the rainforest canopies doing uh, research that is hasn't really been done before. What are you observing, Kevin? And, and what's the point? Uh, well, so far, uh, so far, I've I've been climbing up and, and setting up these cameras as a means of, of just providing some baseline surveys uh, for animals that that live their entire lives up in, up in the trees. Um, essentially, really, what, what you need in order to study animals or protect them is an estimation of their populations are like. Um, basically, we have to get out there and count them. Um, and we do that in a lot of different ways for different species. Sometimes it means walking through the forest and, and counting up what we see. Other times it means placing those cameras on the ground and counting up what walks in front of them. Um, but for the canopy itself, uh, the traditional methods that we use to, uh, to serve those, those animals are, are really not, not uh, very widely used. Um, before these, these uh, camera traps, um, uh, before we started using these camera traps up in the trees, the primary way to do that was to go out at night with a flashlight um, called a spotlight survey. Uh, you shine the light up into the trees and you try and guess what's looking back at you. Um, some people are really good at it, but it takes a lot of training. Um, and because of that, not a lot of people end up doing, doing it. 
And so, Kevin, I mean, you had mentioned spotlight surveys, which I wanted to ask you about. But I guess just just maybe talk a bit more about uh, what you're seeing in your images that you're getting from these camera traps. I mean, a spotlight survey is something that, as you said, would take a, a bit of training to pull off successfully. But a camera oh, looks like we lost Kevin. <laughs> I think we did lose Kevin. Kevin was joining us from Borneo. So <laughs> really interesting research that he's it doing. Really cool, and though. I think that uh, Patrick, again, Patrick Scahill is here. He's a WNPR's uh, science reporter. You're going to follow up on the research yeah, that I'm actually, doing. I, I'm ho- Kevin actually was uh, was in the media lab here uh, at our station and uh, first taught, told me about his research when he was over at Yale. Uh, and yeah, it'll be something that I definitely profile on the blog. He's going to be uh, in Borneo for a few months, and I think he's going to Ecuador for about uh, six more months as well. So it's a year-long thing for him. Anyway, it's really cool. <laughs> it is. It's really cool. I can't imagine being up there 85 uh, feet I, in I the air. I would not be able to handle it. There's absolutely no way. <laughs> <laughs> but a good anecdote that he's a gymnast. So. Exactly. <laughs> So thanks again uh, for Kevin McLean, and we hope to uh, reach him uh, later to do some more reporting uh, from WNPR's Patrick Scahill. But I did want to f- uh, focus a little bit more on a story that you recently yeah, did, sure. Patrick, since we're focusing on on trees and the forest here in Connecticut. Um, felling trees. Tell me yeah. where you went and uh, what they're doing out there in, in, in Durham. I think. Uh, yeah, so I went out to uh, Field Forest, uh, which is uh, over in Durham, and this is uh, a property that's owned by the Connecticut Forest and Parks Association. Uh, and I went out there because uh, they were doing a timber harvest, and I was basically just curious kind of why they were, were doing it. I mean, there's sort of the obvious reason, right, which is to get the wood to sell it, um, which was part of it. But there were um, some more kind of ecological reasons that were in, in play as well, um, which I'd be happy to talk about. So, <laughs> And so the point is they're helping um, trees, I guess, regenerate. So the dead right. versus waiting for nature to take its course. Yeah. Fall. Yeah. So essentially, uh, they're kind of doing two things when they do these timber harvests. One, one, they're, they're playing a bit with space, um, kind of opening the forest up, uh, mainly in the canopy, to allow more light to reach the forest floor to let seedlings grow um, and to give trees that are already there or trees that get left behind from the harvest uh, a better opportunity to develop their canopy and absorb more sunlight and become stronger. Um, so that's kind of the playing with space. They're also sort of playing with time because, like, as you said, this would happen naturally um, through forest fires and things like that. But uh, part of the uh, reasoning behind this is to speed that process up a little bit and uh, kind of just make it happen quicker so seedlings can regenerate faster. So they're going out there and they're looking for trees that may be unhealthy and they yep. just want to to cut them down. So, so the ash tree for one. Because... Yeah. So ash is an interesting example. And we actually saw a few uh, cases of ash uh, at field forest that were sort of in varying stages of decay thanks to emerald ash borer. And um, that can be a little bit tricky because if the decay gets really advanced, it can make the wood uh, kind of not sellable on the market because it gets it gets messed up essentially. Um, but if it's uh, a, if it's kind of not as far advanced, um, then you can still sell the wood because it, it doesn't actually damage the inside of the tree, where, which is where the wood comes from that they actually sell. So. When you were talking to the uh, the people working out there, you know, do people get upset when they see these crews cutting down these trees and they may not understand, you know, why? Yeah, <laughs> they definitely <laughs> Here do. Here in Connecticut, yeah. And, and this is something that, you know, f- an argument that foresters are having to say over and over again is, hey, well, we're taking the long view here and we are doing this to make the forest stronger uh, to ensure that your trails uh, are look really nice in the future. Uh, so that's one part of it. The other part that's always a little bit tough to explain is, 
once the harvest is done, um, obviously trees are gone, but uh, slash and brush is left behind. So there's trees that are on the ground that are kind of just left there. And that's done to control things like water runoff and erosion, um, also to make it so that the machines that are out there doing the logging don't mess up the forest floor. Uh, so that stuff gets left behind, and some people don't really understand why that's there. But there's a reason for all of it, and, and trust me, tons of planning does go into these these calculated timber harvests. And you can go to WMPR.org to, to hear and read more about Patrick's story. Also, a great video from WMPR's digital reporter, Wonderful Ryan video, Karen yeah. King. That's at WMPR.org. Now, we've had a caller that's been on hold for a while. I just wanted to go quickly. Uh, Bill from New Haven, we just have a couple of minutes. I know you, you had a special thing that you want to do on our air here. <laughs> Yep, that's me, Bill Fisher from New Haven. Um, a friend of mine who's a second-year violin student at the Boston Conservatory, she introduced me to an oak tree up at the summit of East Rock Park in New Haven. And she wrote this song about trees in general, but that tree in particular. For each child that is born, hundreds of trees are all around. Please, tree, teach me how to be strong like you. Teach me, teach me how to put my roots deep in the ground. Thank you, thank you for being my friend. Thank you, thank you for being. That's it. All right, Bill. Well, I think Bill. that's a great way to, to end our tree show. <laughs> Thank and you. Uh, Bill, before you go, what's your favorite tree? Is it the oak? My favorite tree actually is the ginkgo. Ginkgo. <laughs> and that's I wish one. I have a big one in my backyard. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that uh, tree song. We appreciate it for the end of our tree show today. Again, I want to thank uh, Kevin McLean. We, he was uh, with us earlier in the in the segment. He's a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellow. Great research being done in Borneo. And WNPR's Patrick Scahill. He's our science and environment reporter, host of The Beaker. Is it thebeaker.org? Yep. So if you want to uh, read some of Patrick's blog and his great reporting here at WNPR, you can go there or website WNPR.org. Do you love WNPR? It's our fall membership drive. We'd love your support of where we live. Our listeners are passionate. We hope that you can translate that passion for public radio into dollars to support WNPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to pledge your support. And thanks for listening.